0: Mark Shaw, this is an opportunity for you to talk to us about the importance, relevance of your recent book. Mark Shaw is well known to this audience. He is a former colleague of mine at the Centre of Criminology and Director of the Global Initiative. And over the last five years, there's been three books that emerged under the name of Mark Shaw, Hitman for Hire in 2017, Um, Give Us More Guns very enticing kind of title in 2021. And then more recently, Breaking the Bombers. And I was thinking as I looked at these recent books, all published by Jonathan Ball. Thank you, Jonathan Ball, for taking the risk. And I hope that it's been a rewarding one from your um, side of the universe. All three of these books, Mark, I thought could be an interesting topic for a postgraduate student to kind of tease out what the connections are from Hitman for hire to buying more guns from the state to breaking the bombers. So thank you for your contribution. Um, on the panel, we have... In the first instance, um, a fellow South African, advocate Ruzi Pekoli, who's got a very long history. Um, for purposes of our conversation this, this morning, I think because he was so critical a player in the design of a state apparatus, an anti-corruption body that could begin to engage at a very critical time of South Africans' democratic history, to engage with the responsibility and the challenges of the state in fighting what then became quite a violent um, anti-crime formation in South Africa. So, Rusi, welcome here this morning. We look forward to your reflections of that period and the lessons that we could draw more widely for the, the, the issues of ongoing vigilantism across many spaces in South Africa and the, the challenges that that pose to democratic governance. Um, in the third instance, we have Roman um, Lecour, and Roman, you are very much here this morning because of your international research expertise on the topic on many things, but specifically on vigilantism um, in the in spaces of Mexico. Um, and we look forward to you bringing a comparative experience. Um, set of reflections. Pagart is a case study um, that was kind of morphed in the South African context, but South Africa doesn't have the license on these things to think more broadly. And as I think in the in the the fourth instance, to also invite Professor Etanibir Lemica to bring his reflections on anti-crime mobilization, civic action vigilantism um, and social ordering questions into the equation. So, Mark um, and other panelists, with that brief introduction, Mark, I think you should use the next 10, 15 minutes to walk us through the book, Breaking the Bombers, how the hunt for Pagot, people against gangsterism and drugs, created an opportunity for a crack police unit, that is the subtitle. So Mark, if I could start, why this book? And what is the relevance 25 years down the line of providing us with the kind of historical details of this anti-crime vigilante grouping? What is the relevance for us in understanding the dynamics that unfolded through the body of Pagot.
1: Arena, thank you very much also to colleagues and and to people who have um, uh, tuned in to the to the discussion. There's a couple of reasons for the book. The first is that it was a very dramatic period of South African and Cape Town history which I felt had largely been forgotten and just to give you statistics As a reminder of how dramatic it was, there were over 400 uh, bomb explosions in Cape Town in this period, uh, 1998 to 2001. And of those 400, they were predominantly focused against gang bosses and gang establishments. But a significant number, around 20, were also focused against civilian targets, the state, uh, synagogues and the like. And Pagad, uh, was behind these explosions and had a very mixed organisational origin. It was both a vigilante group, still is a vigilante group, uh, but also used that to mobilise communities in a much more targeted campaign against the state. So Paget was a is and was and is a a, a complex uh, beast to to understand. It fits into the vigilante style response to crime, in my view, because it it mobilised people uh, against. Uh, organized crime, but then became criminal itself. And I think that's a story that, that I hope other speakers pick up on. Not only was it engaging in bomb blasts against gang targets, also against the state, but it was shooting in organized hits large numbers of, of gang members. And from the period of research, and it, it took three years, uh, I I drew a, a number, I suppose, of key conclusions, which are outlined in the book. Firstly, I wanted to tell the story of the state's response to Pagat. And the reason for, for telling that story was because in this immediate post-apartheid phase, the state's security apparatus was a was a mix between old and new influences. There was a a new, at the time, interim and then final constitution, which limited what the state could do, quite rightly, in in the rule of law framework. So state institutions had to, with the state security apparatus, had to respond in much more complicated uh, ways than it had done in the past. And this was the first challenge, and Paget was a very sophisticated challenge. It operated in cells, It was extremely violent, the small bombing group, uh, was a very cohesive group, also cohesive ideologically. And the state, in fact, wasn't very cohesive at, at the time. Uh, and the, the the story of the individuals involved is what the book is about. And Irina, as, as I know and we have discussed, I'm very interested in telling individual stories in the context of criminology because it's it's individuals who, in in my view, of course, there are structural conditions, but individuals who make history, who make choices, uh and and uh Vusi himself, not necessarily in the era of Pagat, but made individual choices around the formation of what who was prosecuted and how, and 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 in, indeed suffered the consequences for that. So it's individuals who in all their complexity. Uh, are engaged in in these responses, both on the vigilante and on the state side. And that's the story I wanted to to tell. There's then a number of very important sort of sub-themes that that emerge. And just to to, uh, identify those in the sense of this discussion, firstly, at least my research suggested that Paget killed a lot of gang bosses, but the implication of that several years later and into contemporary Cape Town is still extraordinarily high levels of violence. So if you kill a large number, we don't know the exact number, but it's in the hundreds, of gang leadership, organized crime leadership, you do not end the problem. In fact, mm-hmm. what you do is you, well, in this case, it suggests, and I would be interested in comparative examples, you sort of prune the tree, and, and out of that grew a much more violent, less organized Um, chaotic, but more global form of organized crime in in Cape Town. And as the book recounts, you know, several years after Pagad, yes, there was a, 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 you mentioned, give us more guns. This was the case of state guns being sold to gangs, but the homicide rate for Cape Town went up to something of 70 per 100,000. Now, 70 per 100,000 is really at the level of Central America. Um, It's declined since then, but it's still very, very high comparatively globally. So so Pagad had unintended consequences in its campaign, if you like, um, in in terms of reducing gang activity. The second key point, I've mentioned it already, but I I think that's core to our discussion today. Pagad's genesis is very complicated. There's there's sort of two interpretations. I subscribe to one, but I'll outline the two. The first is that Pagad was a community response to organized crime that then turned ideological. I'm simplifying a bit, but more or less, these are the debates. The second is that Pagad was an ideological core group, Qibla in this case, a, a, a Islamic group with links to Iran, which wanted to create a broader constituency. It had not supported the transition to democracy. So it was finding a place and it looked for Uh, broader community support. And in the immediate period post-1994, drugs had poured into South Africa and Cape Town. So the Muslim middle class, amongst others, from which Pagad uh, partly drew its support, was very badly affected in this process. So this period of mobilization to create a a broader, um, more community response, uh, which then Qibla used Arguably, in both interpretations, the, the the when the state began to target Pagad after a period of confusion, which is outlined in the book, Hibler could say, Look, the state is targeting us. We're the good guys, we need to target the state. And that's what effectively happened through a series of bomb blasts, which Pagad has never claimed responsibility for, which caused great destruction. Um, and and loss of life and great fear. I, and, and that's one of the things that I think was very important to highlight is many people, including survivors of the bombings, didn't want to talk on the record because they still feared uh, Paget. There was a lot of rumors about who had planted the bombs, um, etc. The third big area, so the sort of the second one is more around vigilantism, what it is, where it becomes. And maybe I should just finish off that point. The vigilante groups Uh, apart from being, if you like, ideologically used, as I've tried to outline, when they were robbing organized crime establishments, drug houses, shooting gang bosses or the like, they turned criminal in three ways. Firstly, through extortion, they uh, would take money from some people to not be killed, so the beginning of the provision of extortion-style economies. Secondly, they stole weapons from the state to be able to engage in violent activities, so they, uh, well, became criminal in the sense that they they needed those weapons. Thirdly, when they invaded houses, they would steal drugs and cash on instruction. They were meant to provide that into the central core of PAGAD leadership and funding. Many began to take that for themselves. And justifying that, and and so those processes of sort of the political economy of Pagad in in ideological community so, uh, uh, community support and then criminal in in these sets of complex interactions, Pagad in my view becomes a kind of organized crime group itself, and Pagad has now split, and indeed uh, you can say that that several of its its members are now. Um, or ex-members are are involved in organized criminal activities. The third big component of the book, as as I've mentioned already, and I I think this is the most important in some ways, was that in my view, every state has a tradition, a bureaucratic tradition, tradition of security maintenance. And 1994 was a fundamental break between what South Africa had, an authoritarian state defending white rule, and what South Africa needed to develop, a democratic state representative of all of its citizens, operating within the rule of law. And it fundamentally needed a set of institutional changes around which it could face new challenges in a democratic order. Now, the process in which those were underway had just begun when the Pagat crisis began. And what the Pagat crisis did was to force those issues onto the agenda in a much more volatile, more pressurized circumstance. And in some ways, those circumstances really produced a a, a kind of hardened diamond, if you like, because out of it came a set of individuals on both sides uh, who recognized that they needed to do things differently. And uh, South Africans at the time will remember there were very, very strong calls for a return to old order ways of doing that. So calls... Um, and I was in the States at the time, and 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 these these were uh, in in my own visits to Cape Town. These were calls that or, or suggestions made to me was that uh, by the police, for example, that we needed to return to detention without trial. That Pugat could not be managed in the context of a rule of law constitutional response. Secondly, that Pagat should be banned. That that in order to deal with an, a group as dangerous as this, it, the the old playbook needed to be: we ban it we arrest people, we hold them for longer, because this is essentially an urban terror threat. And and indeed, it was. um, And that was the terminology that was used. Instead, what came out of this was a organization, which basically drew together prosecutors, police and intelligence personnel, which had really been very split and not worked together before properly in a rule of law environment. And from that came the scorpions, which was a high-level, sophisticated response to organized crime in South Africa. And so a new security, bureaucracy, and apparatus and approach was being created through this period. And that was critical for the future of South Africa. Something new with new new personalities and new approaches was being forged in this very important time. The scorpions were dismantled later. That's part of the story at the very end of the book. Why? Why? because they were too successful. They challenged people in the political elite who had become involved in crime themselves. But the point was, in this period between 1998 and 2001, on the table in South Africa was an enormous set of innovative policies, an organized crime act, witness protection, which had been failing new institutions, and a framework in which to work within the rule of law, created in a very short space of time, putting practice against Pagad, not perfectly implemented. For a lot of reasons, the evidence hadn't been collected from the beginning. Uh, Pagad was a very challenging um, uh, op- opponent. But the bombings ended through the coordinated, leadership-driven approach that that uh, that was driven by a set of, of, of um of key actors. And from that approach, and, and uh Arena, I'll finish now. From that approach, emerged for me lessons which are applicable to South Africa today. South Africa is number seven on, on the Global Initiative Organized Crime Index, facing a very, very complex set of organized crime challenges, but also having high resilience, so high institutional resilience. And those lessons are very much still on the On the public table today, how do you convert intelligence into evidence? How do uh, prosecutors and police cooperate? Do we have the institutions we need? Were they reformed enough post-apartheid? What is the role between gangs, organized crime, and the police, the informant networks which have corrupted both, I would argue? So many of the same questions are on the table, but this period in which the book covers came up with solutions in a period where the state under the ANC had actually a lot of legitimacy. That doesn't apply nearly as much now, but it raises important questions about what lessons we might learn. I'll stop there. I mean, that's what the book's about. And, and uh, it's told... Uh, just to emphasize through the, the voices of people on all sides who were involved.
0: Yeah. Mark, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I mean, 16 chapters, uh, reads like a crime detective novel. There are very interesting uh, people uh, whose contribution on this or that side of the equation um, is brought to the fore. So it really individualizes this kind of historical um, review of events that happened as the new constitutional state begins to kind of flesh out, uh, you know, the, the framework of governance. Um, so thank you for, for identifying that the story is about many things and the complex interconnections really um, between Pagot, the state, and civil society on the other side. Mark, before I ask rusi to bring some of his observations into the equation, I wanted to just ask over the last week or so, you had a number of opportunities to talk about the book um, in different spaces. Could you perhaps highlight Two or three responses from the audiences in the plural that you have engaged with. What are the most critical issues that have come from the floor in response to your presentation and to reading the book?
1: Thanks, Arina, a lot. And of course, it was a great privilege to present to a broadly South African audience in many events um, in the course of last week. I would say three. The first is that. People had forgotten about the events of Pagad. I think that's a very important South African response because the news cycle in South Africa is just endless, focusing on the next crisis. And yet many people then remembered the trauma and the fear uh, around the bombing campaign, whether that's that they didn't go out or they were searched before going into shopping centers or whatever the case. So this for me was very, and a lot of touching responses to that, particularly uh, when people remembered survivors and there you are know, pictures of survivors in the book and some of the survivors came to to the presentations um and and that was very uh moving for me personally so this this the sense of oh my goodness this was a critical period but so much has happened we sort of didn't identify it as a critical period at the time and 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 the, the if if anything I hope rather modestly that the, the book is a, a a reminder of this very intense Period in the early years of democracy. I guess the second reflection is around a kind of despair in some ways. I, I don't want to overstate it, but the sense that, and and I think this comes from people within and around Pagad too. So from a broad spectrum of people, which is you know, wow, the state could get it together against Pagad, but they couldn't get it together against crime and and key criminals. And the sense of, well, we've, we failed on, we we've, we, 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 we targeted people who were fighting crime rightly. They were, they were dangerous. I, I, people in Pagata, I, I think would argue, well, you didn't understand our struggle. So, the, you know, this is the, the response, but the sense that, well, the state can do it. Why didn't they take it forward? Mm-hmm. And now look what we've got now. I, I I'm trying to encapsulate what, what people said. And this, this kind of despairing sense that, Um, we need to do better. We need to take the lessons and we need leadership. And of course, there's an election coming. To what degree does does crime and and response to complicated crime mean in contemporary South Africa? The third, and I say at last, because I I hope it segues into what others will say, is the issue of vigilantism itself. And uh, people mentioned other vigilante attempts across, uh, uh, not attempts, uh, initiatives across South Africa, some of them very recent a very prominent one in Soweto, uh, KwaZulu-Natal, elsewhere. And the sense that vigilantism grows when the state is weak uh, or 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 not focused on crime, that vigilantism has an ideological veneer, whether right or centre, it, it develops that, because it has to, to... to Pagad was perhaps an extreme example, but the other examples are, 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 are no less important. Um... And, and and that ideological veneer is around, you know, protecting communities or, or whatever it might be. And that the danger of criminal, and in the context where the state is particularly weak, there can be almost an inevitable confrontation with the state coming between vigilante groups and the state. And that this process of vigilante groups first Beginning to try and seek a symbiosis with the state, and then breaking and challenging the state, and then the state responds, and this exactly the course of the Paget story. The state then targets vigilante groups quite rightly, and it has to because they threaten the state. But the the almost immediate response is, well, then you why do you target us and not criminals? So this very complex interplay um, in the in the discussion around vigilante responses to to organized crime. And the kind of red lines for vigilante and community action. Where, where is the red line for, for community action? Should communities engage in raids themselves on organized crime outfits? Should they pass information to the state when they know the state may be corrupt? And that uh, that may not be a meaningful thing to do and indeed may, may bring a focus back on them. And so these were the kinds of the, the debates we had. And to finish off, I, I think for me, And and for others in the multiple audiences, one of the key things is that community action is needed to respond to organized crime, but it has to be done in partnership with the state. And in a place like South Africa, it means that the state has to be fixed, whether we like it or not. The institutional capacity of the state has to be made accountable, fixed. Corruption has to be challenged. And that's a process. It's not something that's achievable overnight. It may sound very obvious, but that's the only way forward unless you want to devolve into a kind of malicious style, uh, gated set of communities, both protecting themselves from organized crime at best or at worst becoming criminal themselves.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I'm sure that Romani is sitting there and contemplating how he can link um, to your discussion on the the sort of fraught relationships between local strongmen or what he calls uh, Mexican auto-defensas and the relationship with the criminal underworld and with the state. How complex is that terrain? And how it never sits still, how those dynamics evolve in mysterious ways as you know the days um tick past. So, Humana, I'm sure that you have you 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 you're quite prepared on that side to to also bring the Mexican equation into our discussion. But before we do so, Vusi, I'm gonna call on you um to offer some reflections on Pagod as one case study, but so many case studies of vigilantism um, emerging across the kind of landscape of this country. And being reminded of your, your role also in the Kailicha Commission of Inquiry, how that also touched on the issue of self help initiatives. Please, receive
2: Thanks, Rena, and it pertains to, to everybody. Um, perhaps let me start with the name Haggard for the sake of those who might not be familiar. Haggard is an acronym that stands for People Against um, Gangs and Drugs. And perhaps that's where the first fault line lies. And I would have preferred, um, you know. People and police against gangs and drugs. For me, that's the first fault line. And why so? Why is it uh, just people against drugs and, and, and um Gangs. It is because of a breakdown in the relations between the police and the communities. Um, it is because people lacking confidence and trust in the work of the police. That's why we ended up having this vigilante group. Obviously, noble in its intentions of fighting gangs and drugs, but isolating itself from the police because they've lost trust and confidence in the police. So Mark has uh, carved beautifully, a local example, which has got uh, global um, characteristics. Uh, The scene is set in Cape Town, but it could have been anywhere in the world because of the same principles that apply. Um, So it just takes me then to saying, why do we have such a situation arising? As I said, people lose confidence in, in the police, lose trust in the police. And then police, most of the time, fail to respond to call-outs by members of the public. Or their response time is very slow. By the time they arrive, things would have gone bad. Secondly, you have shoddy police investigations. Um, and most of the time, you find that even the crime scene is not properly cordoned off. The crime scene, most of the time, gets contaminated and uh, it's very difficult them to be able to use whatever evidence that could have been collected at the crime scene um thirdly it's a question of poorly trained investigators and at times also, Uh, prosecutors struggling to deal um, with gangs, which is then normally tied up with allegations against the police, the police being accused um, of colluding with criminals, colluding with gangs, uh, being in the pockets of of, of, of gangs. And then in that situation, then the public gets so frustrated and they resort to to self-help. And Mark's book also is situated, you know, within a period of a transition from autocracy to democracy, where we have got a constitutional democracy in South Africa, where the rule of law is paramount. Now, you would have the the police pleading, you know, constraints or, or operational constraints imposed on them as a result of the new constitution, unjustifiably saying that the constitution favors uh, the criminals. That's why they are not as effective as they should, you know, um, in their work. Um, For me, this becomes unjustifiable because in the past, the South African police were so used to policing opponents of the apartheid uh, government. Therefore, emphasis was more on um, policing um, liberation movements in South Africa. And very little attention being paid to the fight against crime. Um, so, in the transition, all that had to be changed, and then you start them then hearing because in the past they would rely more on extracting confessions through torture, which case has since been outlawed in terms of our new constitution and being a state that's that's. It was governed by the by the rule of law. And now this is where things then started going sour. Yes, people were genuinely concerned about gangs, genuinely concerned about drugs that were proliferating, you know, the townships. Um, so this is where perhaps the problem is in terms of lessons that we can draw from Mark's book, basically, is that um Governments should work on human security with a capital S, not with a small s in terms of state security. More looking at national security considerations, which would then force governments to attend to socio-economic conditions that become also the pretty grounds um, for such acts of criminality um, that would allow organized grants and um, organized syndicates to climb within communities Um, so for me these are the issues that uh, uh, Mark clearly um, identifies in his book and we should not lose sight of those issues. Um, Briefly coming to, to to perhaps uh, possible solutions, um, well, obviously, the starting point would be for the police to improve their efficiencies, you know, and to improve their response time and, and, and to make sure that they are very effective in the fight against crime, not only in combating crime, but also being involved uh, in, in social crime prevention issues. Which will go beyond the police. It will go to other state departments, uh, the Department of Social Development, Sports, Education, Health, and so forth. Um, and then obviously, we need to have better cooperation and collaboration between the communities and the police to ensure that you don't have then that breakdown of relations between the police and the communities. Um, thirdly, again, something which seems obvious but we don't, um, we don't see its its effect. Uh, the question of ensuring that we prove the training of investigators as well as the prosecutors. This seems to be common sense, but achieving these things seem to be quite, you know, a mountain to climb. And then, of course, uh, Mark also has sort of given us also the genesis of the territory of special operations that had adopted that had adopted a Troika approach and what is this KROIKA approach? This KROIKA approach was, you know, um, intelligence-driven and prosecution led investigations, bringing, you know, uh, three separate elements, the question of intelligence, the question of investigation, proper investigations, as well as the question of prostitutions. Um, just uh, to make sure that I don't spend more time on this, is. And then of course it just goes without saying the question of asserting the independence of the prosecutors and with no executive interference. And the prime example of this Mark, uh, it makes it very clear the flowerpot bomb uh, in the book, you know, where the investigators messed up the case when they had an the opportunity to actually catch um, the bombers red-handed. But they had messed up so much, they are Statements were so contradictory, and the prosecutors, you know, threw the matter out of out of court because it could not; uh, they couldn't sustain it. Um, and then, two last points I want to raise, or three three last points. One, the importance of strengthening the witness protection program and the protection of whistleblowers goes without saying, you know. Um, and then you need to have ethical and visionary leadership within the entire criminal justice system, ensuring that you uproot corruption within the criminal justice system. Inside, my last point, you know, I always say that the political will and integrity of political leadership at the at the fulcrum around which a successful criminal justice system uh, rewards. Thank you, Elena.
0: Lucy, I was getting worried because the list became longer and longer. And I was thinking, what about political will? And what about non-executive interference? And there you had it at the bottom of the list. Thank you for a very long list. I think I uh, I realize that you are speaking, of course, to the hard experiences that you yourself um, had during a very critical period within the national prosecuting authority. So you speak with authority about the importance of these critical ingredients. Thank you, Lucy. So, um, Ruma, I I'm wondering whether we could turn to you in the light of the conversation. To say what resonates, what echoes from Pagot on the Cape Flats in the southern part of Africa, and your understanding of of Mexican developments.
3: Thanks so much. Thanks for for inviting me to the to the to the talk. I think it does. Um, it does connect a lot, and it does allow me to to pursue so many discussions that we had internally at um, at the GI working on on Burkina Faso and, and and Nigeria in in particular, and trying to again like connect the dots between so many different vigilante movements. Um, and I I have to say that it's a space um, that is not necessarily. Very common to find to be honest like comparative work on on vigilantism is something that is usually been done in some areas in some parts of, of academia but it's not something that we Usually see in civil society, and I think this is um, this is extremely precious. Um, of course, we have been discussing these issues with with Mark um, when 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 I was uh, working on on drafting the um, the Vigilante uh, report on the on the Mexican case, and I think there's there's so many uh, there are so many connections that 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 really resonate uh, today. Just very very briefly to introduce that the, the Mexican case, basically the groups on which I've been working for the past ten years. Um, were located in the western part of Mexico. It's armed groups that presented themselves as vigilante groups under the name of self-defense groups, auto-defense in, in, in Spanish. They were um, created in, in February 2013 and they raised up to more than 15,000 armed men, very armed in, in many cases. And they were fighting a drug cartel at the time and try to organize to um, take down the, the, the cartel, basically, right? So what we see is at the beginning, and I think it does connect a lot and it does open so many discussions on on, on the relationship with between vigilante groups and, and the state is basically in my case, um vigilante groups auto defenses were uh, a response from a re- very rural setting in in that case very male rural setting in, in in that case and the objective was basically to do what the government was not seen as doing in response to organized crime and uh, racketeering especially um, especially in the in the rural part uh, all the while calling upon the very same government to actually support them with political and military resources and i think this is something that we have been discussing and that is blatant from from the south of african cases as well and kind of the huge paradox within vigilante movement is basically while vigilante usually profess to belong to you know tradition of self-help and and autonomy taking justice into their their own hands they usually and simultaneously fed, feed the demand for more state presence more state inter- intervention especially by backing um their Uprising sometimes, but also by just like doing what the state and the government is supposed to be doing in very theory, basically, right? And actually in the in the context of of the Mexican war on drugs, many academics, experts, journalists have argued that the growth of vigilante groups, the emergence of auto defenses in Mexico are a symptom of the weakening of of the state, right? That is basically those groups are understood as enemies of public authorities as organized crime groups uh, are usually seen. My work, and I think it does connect a lot with what we were discussing today, tries to move and present a slightly or very different hypothesis, actually. And I'm I'm saying that the emergence and the multiplication of auto-defense as groups and even drug cartel groups does not mean that the state has withdrawn, That does that mean that the state is weak? I think it does illustrate the way negotiations, the way governance and the way criminal governance have evolved in the past years, and the way relationships between armed civilians and government have transformed in, in so many regions of, of Mexico. And I think it does apply in, in other contexts. In this, in this um, in this arena, I think again, what we have is a will and a a very strong will expressed by the autodefensas and the vigilante groups in general to seize authority, to reclaim order, to impose moral order in many cases, and to take action themselves, usually again calling for the federal government or the government in general to intervene as a kind of guarantor of the law. And again, this is the this is the paradox of of the vigilante groups, I think, is basically you have armed or less armed, but citizen movements that are committed to violate the law in order to reinforce or in order to enforce it in a way. And and I think this is what makes vigilante groups extremely... Um, complicated and fluid to to study and understand. I think it's what makes them so interesting today in understanding again new sets of relationships between organized crime, armed civilian or less armed civilian, and public authorities. In that sense, um, and the, in in the in the Mexican case again, the auto defenses were extremely armed. Um, and to tell the sto- the story very short, they ended up transforming in so many different small groups that are today. Yeah, active in so many licit and illicit markets. So in a way, and I think it's um, another important idea about vigilantes, is that in a way, vigilantes claim, but I think do not really aim at eradicating crime. I think instead, they might settle for trying to regulate it and limiting it to more morally acceptable forms of crime, but also to try to show and broadcast an enormous discontent, discontent Um, against the state in response to violence and crime, of course, a phenomenon that we've seen in so many different contexts, without a proper ability or will to actually eliminate organized crime. I think in so many cases in Mexico and Central America, basically vigilante groups want to regulate violence more than eliminating it, maybe because they know they can't actually do it. And they mostly want to change the way um, criminal groups are operating in, in in their regions. So in a way, I think, and, and, and pushing the idea of relationship between vigilante groups and, and, and the state, I think it's, um, in my case at least, a very interesting example of how you have civilian groups, criminal groups, armed groups, led by very specific um, men, leaders in, in, in this case. And it does actually illustrate the emergence of a new set of power brokers or intermediaries for violence at the local level. So, those leaders are able within and through the vigilante groups, I think, to accumulate local power basically to become a kind of political boss, if you wish. And they become, when they manage to do so, extremely attractive for the authorities to actually govern through them, which is not very regional, honestly. You have so many examples of, you know, like um, criminal groups or armed groups acting as proxy governors for governments all around the world. So you have basically public authorities kind of delegating power, delegating so many tasks um, to vigilante groups at the local level. I think especially um, in the rural areas in which in which I've been I've been doing field work. So what I've been trying to show is in a way, when vigilante groups operate on the ground, it's usually quite easy, especially if you're doing field work, to actually understand, but also to document the enormous set of relationships that tie those vigilante groups to public authorities first, and it's usually quite hard to demonstrate that people usually talk about it, it's money, right? Because those vigilante groups, they have usually a huge paradox that basically you need um, enormous hours of work, you need to be on the streets, you need to patrol, you need to set up checkpoints, you need to commit yourself to so many kind of community activities in a way, but you don't get money out of it. What happens usually is the state, when the state tries to cooperate and use those vigilante groups to work for him, it can promise, you know, a small salary, a small stipend and say, I will pay for gas, I will pay for food, I will pay for trucks, I will pay for weapons, uniforms, radios, and even maybe paying you something per day working on the vigilante groups. The thing is, usually what the state does is just a promise, at least in the Mexican case, it works this way. So when the state is not able to fulfill, again, this, this promise of actually supporting the vigilante groups, the vigilante groups need to be able to sustain their operations. And it's a very expensive operation because, again, you have to be on the streets for a long time. This is when, and Mark was, was talking about it, this is when vigilante groups usually turn to illicit illicit markets, regulation, extortion, yeah. very, very classic, like, because you control territory as a vigilante group, or at least you have an, ex- an a very strong presence at the territorial level. It's quite easy to impose extortion. So you turn quite quickly to, I'm the new protector in town, basically. I'm the vigilante group. My job is to protect you. My job is to provide order. And I will ask you for money for it, right? And 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 very quickly, in so many cases, vigilante groups, as soon as they install, in a way, and as soon as they, they need money for, for operation... Um, they ask people for 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 this for this kind of money in a very fluid process between some sort of le- legitimacy, which is sometimes extremely strong, and it's also part of the questions that we usually face when we work on vigilante groups, the level of legitimacy that they might have at the local level, which is, I think, and from my perspective, extremely tied to the efficiency they're able to offer against criminal activities for the local people, something that usually local people, um, uh, blame the government for, like the government is, um, not capable of bringing crime down. For example, is not capable of making my streets calm, my hill calm, my, my community calm. The vigilante groups is able to do it. And if those guys are able to do it and, um, they're able to do it better than the government, I will give them money and I will support them with, 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 legi- with, with legitimacy. The thing is, and I will conclude with, with that. I think is the huge challenge between the rise of vigilante groups because they're extremely efficient, because they're cheap, honestly, for the government. It's it's cheaper for the government to have, you know, cooptation optation um, dynamics, dialogue with vigilante groups in, in, in Latin America today, in Mexico for sure, um, working for him in a very non-official way. The government is usually very keen on letting the vigilante groups... Um, Proliferate, but also engage in extortion activities in a way of saying, you know what? If you have a sustainable kind of scheme for making yourself um, f- financially sustainable, just go for it. Uh, as long as you don't, you don't, you don't do much um, in terms of, I don't know, troubling political order, for example. Um, and then the thing is, the relationship between the government and those groups are, as Ma- Mark was saying, is extremely—they're extremely unstable in a way. <laughs> That's, that's a huge. That's that's, that's a huge problem that, that that we have. Like it, usually vigilante groups might seem efficient uh, at short term, at least because they're able, for example, to take crime down. But as soon as they turn into um, a new kind of criminal group themselves um, they might become a source of instability as well and the thing is usually what you see with those those leaders in mexico the auto defense as leaders is they start to accumulate and they're able to accumulate power reputation resources political power legitimacy etc very very quickly and very quickly they start saying you know what i will try to convert this kind of illicit power into illicit power so i will present myself for elections for example i will starts repressing other uh, citizens' participation. And usually the government is, again, quite happy at the beginning and then quite unhappy when it sees um, the brokers accumulating too much power. And the thing is, it does create this context in which, and I will finish with that, it does create a context in which normal or at least unarmed citizen participation is extremely difficult in a context in which you have those armed people, vigilante leaders, vigilante movements saying, I am citizen participation and I will do my best to protect and, and, and serve serve the, 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 the community. So I think it does create this kind of, of extremely blurry and fluid context. And, and again, like the comparison between Nigeria, Burkina Faso, South Africa, Mexico or Colombia in that case is extremely fruitful for, for the discussion.
0: Thank yeah. you, Roman. That was a, a short course almost in the very exciting research that you've been doing, and thank you for picking up on the parallels. We clearly don't have enough time, because I think I can sense that this comparative perspective may take us quite deep down the conversation on vigilantism. Um, Professor Alemica, let's just take stock We have six minutes until three o'clock, and then we still have 10 minutes. So may I ask that you use your 10 minutes to reflect um, on the echoes from Nigeria? And then we will conclude. There is one question that I see Simone Hasen posted, Um, Mark, what did writing this book about the past make you realize about what we're getting wrong or right in the present? So maybe as the last shot and in response to that question, Mark, you can give us um, a short response. Professor Elemeka
4: Thank you so much, uh, Arena. Um, I, I I'll start on an attempt to clarify the mystery of vigilantism and um, I think the concept has evolved in some way that is sometimes pejorative and it sometimes uh, had a positive connotation. and I think we need to understand these Mutation from pejorative uh, concept or notion to a more positive or functional concept, uh, and I think that has been the history of the concept of uh, vigilantism. Fundamentally, I think when people talk about uh, vigilantism, they are talking of two uh, two phenomenon uh, in one. First, they are talking about self care in preserving safety and security without formal police powers or authority. An element of vigilantism also generally is actually retribution violence. The violence is often a composite element of vigilantism. So in some contexts, and, and I'm now trying to indicate that there are times where vigilantism might actually be in support or supported by government. And there are times in which vigilantism is antagonistic towards government. So there is a lot of mutation in the cost of the life of a particular uh, vigilantism. In the case of Nigeria, and I think I'll come back to that with uh, something that Mark said earlier. In the case of Nigeria, of course, traditionally, community vigilance and safety uh, provision is traditional. Now, we should distinguish uh, community vigilance and safety provisioning from vigilante. I I I think to distinguish vigilante properly in our discussion, we're actually talking about a variant in which violence is important, in which the root is not necessarily based in community, but rather has elements of uh, agency that may be distinct from the community. So in the case of Nigeria, vigilante group became very popular immediately after the transfer of power to civilians in 1999. And so we also found after that the rise in uh, armed robbery. Across the country, uh, you know, whether in communities or in on the highway. so this it, it mark uh, this armed robbery marked a major uh, impetus or trigger for the emergence of uh, vigilante in different parts of Nigeria. And when it started, of course, um, there were ambivalence between the vigilante and the police, whether to be antagonistic towards each other or to be uh, collaborative. But what was then discovered was that, in fact, those vigilantes, despite the use of extraordinary, uh, extralegal means, were enjoying popular support from community to the detriment of the police. So you find the police find a way of accommodating them, asking, requesting that rather than acting outside of the law, they should act under their protection. And and I think this is uh, very important uh, police sought to incorporate them or co-op them as part of their larger network of service provisioning. So over the years, we've found proliferation of, uh, uh, you know, of uh, vigilante. And there are two types of vigilante in Nigeria. There are those that actually register with government and have become more or less lawful, agencies, uh, you know, have paraphernalia of legality, but there are those who remain basically community initiative and charge, you know, with the consent of members of the community and even a community, uh, some committee around them, they charge residents protection fee. So you have, you live in a neighborhood, you are asked to pay two rounds every month and that money is used in some way, not to pay a salary, but some kind of allowance to those who who are involved. And that's, again, another variation. So we are dealing with a very complex, very complex issue that, like I said, is on a continuum from outright outlaw to at a point where, in fact, they have become uh, almost uh, a a part of government. So there is this, uh, what I have just said, a proliferation. But in doing that, I think the challenge uh, with vigilante, first, that we must note, One is they do, in fact, contribute to whether the outlaw ones or the relative legitimate ones, they do in Nigeria contribute to reducing the fear of crime and incidence of crime. But most of them use extra legal uh, means, including lynching and extrajudicial killing. So we need to understand uh, this dimension. Most of them also are not accountable. There are no effective oversight to their function, even when they are community-based and they have some kind of uh, uh, relation with the social organization. So we must also begin to uh, you know, look at that character of vigilante. I think what I need to do, uh, because we are pressed for time, and I, uh, and probably will come back with question and answer if there are uh, these, because I think there are similarities in uh, what has been pointed out in Latin America and Nigeria. But I think uh, what we need to look at is what is basically the the, the, the challenges. They are capable of transmuting from militias, uh, from vigilance to militia, and that is a problem in Nigeria. So you find vigilante uh, transmute from um, providing safety, becoming a militia, that is either religious or ethnic in character and therefore threatening the safety of those who belong to certain religious or ethnic categories. And this is, again, some of the threat we find in Nigeria. Then also, whether they collaborate with government or not, they remain committed to using mechanisms and means that are inconsistent with democratic governance. The, whether they, it doesn't matter whether they are out, totally outlawed or in fact they have collaboration with government. So let me just conclude by saying in some cases what the government or what law enforcement agencies in Nigeria have done or you know hope to do in in some cases is actually to provide a legal some kind regulation for the formation of vigilante their functioning their enlistment and their operations and that's in some cases been successful, in some cases it's not been successful. But I think what should be finally an issue of concern for research, which I think I I want to draw, uh, you know, uh, South Africa, is when does vigilantism arise? It does appear from the South African and Nigerian experience, it does appear that we may find this emergence in one condition, not exclusively, When there is a disjuncture between past and imagined security norms and architecture. In the case of South Africa, it was a movement from apartheid to a democratic government. And Packard Packard tried to probably imagine in that to fill some gaps. And as Bushi said, that period in which there is a disjuncture between the past architecture and the new architecture create what one might call an imagined configuration of a new security architecture. And at that point, there is all kinds of uh, ambigu- uh, 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 ambiguity, ambivalence, which, of course, make the agencies less effective in dealing with uh, uh, insecurity. And I think that is tantamount to what sociologists would call, in our know, original uh, formation by Emile Durkheim, a state of anomie. When an old order is gone, a new order is imagined, and yet there is no dominant consensus over the guiding principle of the emerging norms. So I think this is where, uh, you know, environment that provide for emergence of vigilante. But once that has happened, I think they have a capacity for sustenance of never fading away, even when the conditions uh, that brought them together seem to have improved or diminished. Thank you Arena.
0: Professor Olemica, in eight minutes, thank you for for allowing us uh, to almost bring this discussion to a conclusion. but before we do so, um, Mark, did you want to respond to Simone's question?
1: Very briefly, Irina and thank you to to my fellow panelists. It's a reminder actually that vigilantism and its response to organized crime and its evolution actually really does need to be on our research agenda. And and I'm very appreciative for the comments. Very briefly, I think I think three things. If I could the, the first is that Vusi mentioned it, I think in the period ninety-eight to two thousand one, South Africa had a great, there was a, a the NC carried great legitimacy uh, um, in, in comparison, say, to the old police agency being incorporated. And so there was space for very innovative leadership and key people emerged to take that role. And they had been brought up and grounded in politics. And so they had experience of political management and the like, and you saw them emerging. And I think this is a one of the key issues that made the response so interesting and effective. I don't I think we have much less of that now. I, I, if that's a a, a a what has occurred, perhaps following what Atenebia said is a bureaucratization of the security apparatus which had fallen away in this period. Precisely to respond, you know, everything was on the table right now. Not everything's on the table because there's a lot of established bureaucratic interests which previously had been not present. And and so I think the biggest lesson is we face probably a bigger challenge now as South Africans in responding to organized crime in a space where our bureaucratic maneuverability is much less. And and so I think that's a key lesson. And what do we need? I think we need to think innovatively. We need. Key leaders who don't necessarily need to be from the security establishment. That's a that's also a key lesson from the past to bring new ideas on the table. And we need perhaps more than ever to insulate the institutions from politics if they are to build a general pattern of of new uh, security institutions, etc. And the South African security sphere is is still very much a work in progress. And what we do in the coming years will be crucial to its long-term success. I'll end there, in Wow.
0: Well, um I can do no better than thanking you, Mark, firstly, for writing up The Forgotten History, for reminding all of us of that time, of the pain inflicted along the way, but also stories about visionary, committed leaders and foot soldiers that manned. I think they mostly did manning. There weren't very many women at the time who manned parts of the state and had no blueprint, but somehow were innovative and constructed a mechanism called the Scorpions. Vusi, thank you for reminding us that you were part of that attempt to carve out a mechanism and that you watched in the end how interference from the executive. And the absence of political will actually devoured the kind of spirit of the scorpions. Let that be a reminder to all of us. Roman, I heard you use the words, the paradoxes embedded in self-auto-defences initiatives. I also heard you say that we need to be prepared to investigate at a micro level the shifting relational dynamics that emerge and to capture the complexities of that. Professor Alemica, of course it would be you, the sociologist at heart, that would drag Durkheim into the equation and to say two things. The one is, let's pause and just do some definitional work. Let's not forget about the importance of conceptualizing vigilantism and recognizing its endless variance. And secondly, let's rise to the sociological invitation, and that is, what is it about context, situation, enemy? or perhaps in more Marxian terms, the interregums that arise within which uh, vigilante initiatives emerge and flourish. What a conversation. Thank you all.